ask and you shall receive. When I started designing this podcast, I said to myself, I'm going to need a Jungian expert on the show to kind of help me philosophically build a foundation to what I'm shooting for here. My wild and wonderful guest today is just that. Today I interview my brother from another mother, a man I can relate to who is out there doing the good work to help people realize their highest possible potential in this lifetime and well beyond. He does this in part from his very articulate speech, big heart, as well as from his breadth and depth of knowledge on all things Carl Jung and the field of analytical psychology. My guest today is Eric Godsey. He is the host of the podcast, The Myths That Make Us, and he has interviewed guests from Kyle Kingsbury to one of the funniest gingers and fellow Czech practitioners I know, J.P. Sears. And you know, I feel less lonely as a human being knowing there's another ginger who's also a Czech practitioner. But anyways, Eric is an explorer of consciousness, and I actually had the pleasure to develop a very special bond with Eric through participating in four ayahuasca ceremonies and actually getting to know him from spending a full week down in the beautiful Nicoya Peninsula of Costa Rica at Solterra Healing Center. Heck, I think of the relationships I built uh, and the bonds I made with the participants of my Peru ayahuasca ceremonies, and it is something that sticks with you, especially when you meet someone like Eric and get to know him a little better. Actually, when I met Eric and I found out that he worked at Ana, I thought, you know, that's cool. But then when I actually got to know him as a person, I thought that was a million times cooler, especially after, you know, conversations where I realized, you know, how we both have similar interests, we have similar mentors, um, and also that he's, you know, made some same mistakes that I have trying to help folks who don't want help, you know. So here he is now helping those who want help. And, you know, after some conversations about dream work and spirituality, I can see how he calls himself a second brain to Aubrey Marcus. And actually, I have even more respect for Onnit as a company, as well as the whole Fit for Service Mastermind program for having individuals like this a part of their program and mission. So it was so good to connect with Eric again here on this podcast and formally pick his brain this time about the psychologist who he loves um, and his work's actually experiencing a resurgent as we talk about on this show. And, you know, given the current times, it's a no wonder. We all have to do our work and become a whole individual. And we'll talk more about that here today. So we all need to individuate. We all need to become the mightiest oak tree possible. Um, and, you know, Mother Earth or the universe, or whatever you want to say, some force that's not human is calling us right now to do so, to step into that. And I think this podcast is very timely for us all. So I think in this episode, we give some tools, you know, they're going to do just that. Uh, specifically, we discussed what the ego is and, you know, how it is not the enemy, uh, but something that we need to be aware of if we want to shine as bright as motherfucking possible. I feel like that was Eric's voice just coming right through me there. But anyways, I love this episode for the way we weaved in Carl Jung's work, spirituality, and nature connection. There are some tidbits in here. Um, you know, it's all connected, all this stuff, the whole universe. And whether you're into nature-based spirituality or not, I think you will love this episode as there's plenty of tools for you to be your highest self. Um, yeah, we talk a lot about journaling and gratitude journaling, which is something that I'm sure you've heard of lots of in recent years. There's a lot more scientific research on gratitude journaling and, uh, and so there should be, right? We evolved with this negativity bias and I've spoken about this in other episodes, but you know, we're evolved to be weary of a bush that's kind of making weird noises or a smell that kind of gets it's trapped up in our nose from, you know, maybe it's a tiger that wants to eat us. So we are wired to notice the negative. So by gratitude journaling, we can kind of tap in and switch that onto the positive, which I think is a great thing for right now, especially. So I don't know about you guys. One thing about, you know, one thing in spiritual circles or one thing on the, on the internet these days, you know, it's social media. We know that you see the highlight reel of individuals' lives. And sometimes to me, things smell a little bit fishy in the world of self-help or spirituality. For instance, sometimes, you know, I get that feeling that folks aren't so authentic and everyone's trying to be a guru on Instagram. Eric is none of those things, period. And, you know, his passion for this topic of spirituality, Jungian psychology, is genuine AF. So 
kick back, turn up the volume, get a journal or a notebook ready um, because you might want to take notes. In fact, if you don't want to take notes, don't worry, I got you covered. Head over to rewildmybio.com. You can see all the show notes there, past episodes, sign up for the newsletter. You know, that's about it. But that's where you can get all that stuff. So go head over to the website if you do want some show notes for this one. I think it's a great one. I hope you guys enjoy this episode as much as I did. Uh, Much love and thanks again to Eric for being on the show. Enjoy. Welcome to Rewild My Bio, a self-help and alternative health podcast. I'm your host, Sean Slade. Join me as I share stories, science, and strategies to help you rewild your biology and redefine your biography. Godzi, welcome to the show, my brother. How are you doing? I'm so good, man. Thank you for coming on. And it's beautiful to see you manifest this podcast because when I first met you at Soltara a couple of months ago, it was a dream. It was. And now it's reality. It's it's here and you're on it. So, man, that's just just wild. Because, yeah, that was it. I think when I was down in Soltara, I got, I stayed off my phone most of the time, but I got a message from my mom, like in between ceremonies, like day three, I guess. And she said, hey, your podcast gear is in. I'm like, sweet. This is amazing because here I am meeting you and chatting all about all the amazing podcasts we've listened to and everything like that. So, yeah, it, it is a total thrill to have you on here to pick your brain about something that I kind of started to do while we were down in Solterra. But I was yeah. respectful of the process and I didn't want to turn on that left, beautiful left brain of yours. So, <laughs> so I, like, I, I pumped the brakes, but I could see the wheels starting to turn. So I'm going to do my best to kind of tap back into that Eric Godsey magic here today. Sound good? Let's go. All right. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny, too, because I was thinking before we start getting into Jungian psychology and talking about the ego and what even that means and is the ego the enemy and all this stuff. I thought I'd do something to totally inflate your ego and maybe mine a little bit, too, before we get into this. <laughs> and I want to say you do have a very dope name, my brother. Eric Godzi or Godzai. And thank you, brother. Yeah. <laughs> well, I see. How does how does one's ego respond to, to such a thing, right? <laughs> and I and I'm putting I'm watching the look on your face right now, and I and I know how you feel because it's funny. On the we both did a podcast down with Hallie uh, Rose down in uh, Costa Rica on the Thought Room, and it was funny because in the intro to the show that she had done with me, she had commented that I have a dope name, and I've heard that before. I've heard that I'm I sound like a detective or a private eye or a movie star and it's like I never know what to say and it always like baffles me every time it's like okay thanks like I guess right but anyway she'd said the same thing about you and I just thought your name is very very fitting for you and and at least how I've come to to know your ego I guess I could say <laughs> yeah and what's really interesting is if you look at what you do you're deeply interested in tracking and if you look what I do I'm deeply interested mm. in trying to articulate the psyche, which I think is God. So I try to see God. Mm-hmm. And there's an interesting, there are studies that look at your name and they find that you're slightly above chance likely to have an occupation that in some way reflects your name. So for example, if your last name is Smile or has some of like right. teeth in it, you're more likely to be a dentist. And I think that your name sounding like a detective is not an accident that you're mm. so into hunting and tracking like you are. Right. Research, I'm so yeah. into, exactly. And I'm so into spirituality and trying to articulate the faces of God that feel like to me are the parts of the psyche. Right. You know, it makes sense too. My last name's Slade and there's like an old British like punk rock band or something like that. That's uh, Slade. So it's like, yeah, I got, I got, I, cause I've been a front man in a band before. So yeah, it's like, I can, I can rep that too. That's right. Cool. But anyways, enough with the ego inflation here. But you know what? I, I do want to say, and, I, and as the reason for bringing that up in the first place is because, yes, we're going to talk about the ego. And I want to say thank you for your beautiful ego and the container that it provides for your knowledge and passion in what it is that you are passionate about, right? And I think that's just it. We sometimes, in this day and age, in, in spiritual 
uh, realms or in spiritual circles, we sometimes poo-poo on the ego. But essentially, as I've come to understand it through my spiritual teachings, that it's essentially a container that's going to allow us to focus or shine the light on whatever it is that we are called to do. And as I said to you before, like I really see your intellectual interest in the Jungian psychology stuff, but it's a somatic experience for you. And it, it, to me, it seems like it's very much embodied. So I think that's just a, it's a beautiful thing for the ego to be able to do that. Yeah, man, it's in my soul. And the ego is going to be with you the entire time that you have a body in this life. So you might as well get to know it and learn how to dance with it instead of trying to destroy it. Totally, totally. Well, let's uh, let's get into talking about that for the folks. Because, um, well, let's do this. Because I, the show, rewild my bio very much about my biography, but I want to know more about your biography. So tell us about the story that led you into studying the human psyche. And then, you know, tell us what led to you and I crossing paths at Solterra. What's that journey like? Yeah. So the full story would take 28 years to tell, but I'll tell the short version. Okay, let's do that. Um, yeah. Uh, so what got me into psychology is as a young boy, my mom had depression and I very quickly started to tell myself the story. If I can say the right thing and if I can do the right thing, I can make mom happy. Mm-hmm. And so very early I had learned um, how to discern her emotional states and how to understand where she was at and, you know, try to help her. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's not something a six-year-old can do for a, you know, 40-year-old. But um, it got me interested in, in psychology. And my mom tells me the story that uh, whenever I would come home from elementary school, I would sit her down at the dining room table and I would describe to her how people acted at school. And then I would ask her why they acted that way. Mm. And she always says that she knew that I was meant to be a psychologist because that's what I was doing as a kid. Um, And when also when I was a child, I got into reading Greek mythology and Norse mythology and then puberty started. And when puberty started, I stopped reading and it was all about playing basketball and trying to get my penis touched by women. The human stuff. And then, yeah. (laughs) And I, I really developed my ego playing basketball. I, I was tall. I was good. And um, I really thought it was going to be my thing. And then I tore my rotator cuff when I was a junior in high school. And that dream died. But then my ego found a new arena to get really big in. And it was philosophy and psychology. And so around the age of 18, uh, really it was 19, because for about two years after I tore my rotator cuff, I was drinking a lot. And I was uh, I actually got addicted to painkillers. And I was just running away from the fact that my dream had died. But around 19, I started smoking weed. I had a, I had a complete epiphany that I realized I didn't know anything. And you know, for an arrogant 18-year-old or an arrogant 19-year-old, that was mm-hmm. a huge insight. And so I started reading philosophy and psychology very deeply while I was in college. I got a degree in cognitive psychology, which is like how the conscious mind processes information. And slowly got into psychedelics. Psychedelics slowly got me into uh, becoming aware of Joe Rogan and Aubrey Marcus that got me to working at on it and working at on it got me interested in ayahuasca. And then I eventually went and I did ayahuasca and that's where I met you. Boom. To me, that wasn't, that didn't take 20 years, but that's, uh, it's an awesome story. And it's something that resonated with me when you did tell it, when we met down in Solterra, because it's this, it's conscious bros or awakening guys that have had these things in our lives where we tie our ego or our, or our, our, identity to say sports and then when the sports career gone is gone it's who who am I right and things like drinking often fill that so luckily you found psychology and you ended up on the path you did but that that was probably a bit of a journey what was it that was um I guess for you what was the what was the dark time through that journey because it's something that you know we we got these uh when we went to Solterra, we had these uh, heroes jur- journals and in that they have the, the hero's journey and what that is. And could you maybe touch on your journey in regards to maybe where the, you had to look into the dark times or into the shadow 100%. side of things. Yeah. What, what was, what was that like for you and, and how did that benefit you going forward? Yeah. So when I tore my rotator cuff as a 17 year old, um, I, it was my refusal of the call and it led to me drinking Um, some stuff happened in my family where I lived alone in a house as a senior in high school. And I had a party every Friday and every Saturday for probably about four months, just got shit faced on Mm -hmm. cheap, terrible beer. 
and um that's American that's American beer too I might want to point out for this Canadian that's American beer yeah all right (laughs) it's just a whole different level of shitty and then um I got surgery on my shoulder and I lived alone I had no self-awareness I had no parents around me and I got almost six months worth of oxycodone and um, I didn't know anything about nutrition. I didn't know anything about working out. I didn't rehab. I just fucking smashed oxycodone for about four months and then um, didn't know what withdrawal symptoms were, mm-hmm. didn't know what depression was, wasn't self-aware enough to know that I was depressed, ended up gaining about 40 pounds of fat. Um and was just sitting in my room on an air mattress with lawn chairs and a TV because that's all that I had uh, every night on oxycodone, eating mm-hmm. Oreos and um, Pop-Tarts. And uh, I think the moment of realization is I looked at myself in the mirror one day mm-hmm. and I was just like, what? the fuck am i like i had tits and i was just alone in this dark house and i was like i have got to change and then uh i got the four-hour body actually by Tim Ferriss, and that was kind of my first light and i slowly started to work out and uh i ended up a year later being in the best shape of my life and uh, you know that kind of got me started on the path wow yeah it's uh it's an amazing story because that's just it. Most people in those times, sometimes they, they don't hear the call, right? So to speak. And I want to, we'll chat more, I guess, in a little bit about what the call is. But what is interesting to me is I'm hearing the process of individuation, you being called to your higher self. So individuation, very much a Jungian uh, term. What exactly yeah. for the folks, can, how, how can we define individuation or what that is exactly? Yeah, so um, Carl Jung is a psychologist. He's my favorite psychologist. He's regarded as one of the greatest in Western culture in the last 100 years. And like he came up with the idea of introvert, extrovert. The Myers-Briggs personality test comes from him. Oh, it does. He came up with synchronicity. Um, but one of his core ideas is what's called the individuation process. And it's this idea that there's a part of you that you could call your soul that is like an acorn and the acorn has this energy embedded inside of it where it knows it's destined to become an oak tree. Right. And the individuation process is essentially the process of the ego saying yes to becoming who you could be. And to be more specific in a Jungian sense, it's, Becoming aware of all the aspects in your shadow that if you absorb them into your conscious way of being would make you the most total person you are. And it's essentially becoming a total person, which is to become aware of all the parts of you that you casted into the shadow and to be in harmony. And the symbol that he uses to represent that is the mandala. It's all the parts being squared meaning that they're all in alignment and together and cohesive. And he thinks that that's the highest destiny of the soul. It's interesting too, because is, I mean, loaded question, because it's very much a philosophy of the show in that we all, we are all destined to be that mighty oak tree out in the forest, right? It's, it's the will that we have to choose to listen to that call essentially to become that. So I'm glad that you kind of just jumped right into that because I mean I it is my thesis anyways that since we've slowly become more civilized or agrarian or urbanized industrialized all these things we've slowly lost contact or touch in in constant contact with that part of ourselves right this the soul or this higher knowing and I feel that um it's kind of why I'm doing the show right to essentially rewild not only our biologies but our minds so we can tap back into that wild piece of us and for me I'm like a good walk a good nature trail or something like that, I've, I feel that I can more easily kind of see that. What is next for me? Every, the clutter and the, the, all the chatter of the mind kind of just quiets away for me anyways when I'm in nature. And I would sometimes call it like getting a message from the wind. It's kind of how it comes to me when I get these 
kind of callings, right? Yeah. It, it's almost like a gust of wind. Sometimes they come hard and quick and it's done. Sometimes it's like a, a slow undercurrent that's just kind of there and hard to almost feel. But for me, that's how they come anyway. So yeah, I'm really glad that you kind of broke right into that whole analogy of the, the acorn and that. What you, you commented on the shadow. What, uh, can you say more a little, little bit about the shadow? Because that is something, I think that's becoming, um, doing shadow work is something that we're talking a lot about in spiritual circles these days. And sure. I think it's important to kind of um, know exactly what the shadow is um, from, from a Jungian perspective. Yeah, so one way to think about it is imagine, so Jung uses the word psyche to represent the totality of everything that you are psychologically. And if you think of your psyche as a circle, and then you draw a line across the circle where you divide it into basically four-fifths is below the line, and one-fifth is above the line, that one-fifth part above the line, that's your conscious mind. And the center of that part is your ego. And then everything around that is all the things that you could be conscious of in the moment, but that you're not. Right. And then everything below that line is your unconscious, your shadow is in the unconscious and in a Jungian sense your shadow are is all the parts of you that you have judged as not acceptable and or you are unconscious to it's and so a quote that he's famous for is if you see someone and they irritate you whatever it is about them that irritates you that's a part of your shadow right because because you are a human, you have the potential of every possible human emotion and every possible human behavior. And there's something about how that human is being that is a part of you that you've judged as unacceptable, that you suppress, that you don't have access to. And one of the things that Jung talks about is there's a lot of aspects in our shadow that if we had the perseverance to look at it, and we absorbed it into our conscious ego, that mm-hmm. our ego would be more effective in the world. And so an example of that is if someone who's really loud and bolsterous annoys you and you're quiet and you keep your opinion to yourself, um, what that is showing you is that there's an aspect in your shadow that if you were able to integrate, you would be braver in speaking your truth. Mm-hmm but in its exaggerated form, as you're seeing in this person, maybe at the store or something, it aggravates you. And a part of shadow work is to become aware of what it is that you've been suppressing and then to look at it and to see, is there something here that if I actually integrated, I would be more adaptive in my life. Right. It's the challenging stuff, essentially. You know, it's, uh, it's not something I think we're accustomed to in the Western culture, anyways, we often looking for things a lot easier within civilization. And again, I use the word domestication, kind of represent that, right? Kind of suppressing that wild nature or the, the, uh, the will or the, not the will, but the motivation, I guess, to pursue um, that type of work. It's, it's challenging stuff. And I've, and I, uh, one of my mentors has put it in that, like, think of a light bulb in a barn, an old barn, and all the flies are flying around and they're shitting on the light bulb. And eventually, there's so much shit on the light bulb that if you don't clean it off, your light, that light will be suppressed from shining into areas of your life. So by essentially doing this work, we're cleaning off the shit off our off of our light bulb, like you said, so that our ego and everything can totally, uh, you know, kind of blend in with that light and shine as bright wherever we want to shine it, essentially, right? So, um, Yeah, the metaphor that comes up for me is <clears throat> all the domestication of our modern world, it's gravel and concrete that slabbed over the top of the soil that our acorn is in yeah and the behaviors like our ego it can be the gardener for our soul and what that means is through our ego we can change our environment we can change our behaviors to start to move the cement and the gravel out of the way so that the soul can grow through the soil and you know so like choosing to be out in nature choosing to go do cold exposure or heat exposure or to go work out or to, you know, go on an adventure somewhere like you go do ayahuasca or all things that the ego has to plan, that the ego has to go execute on, but it can be in service of the soul to get rid of all the shit that's around the life. Right. You know, uh, well, it makes me think of, of many things, but one thing, it's kind of like, why, why the heck do we have the ego? Um, 
you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, and, and that was beautiful, by the way, just kind of the way you put that in like a nature-based philosophy there. I think that was just very well articulated with the concrete. Uh, I kind of want to steal it. That's what I'm saying to you right now. I might even just, that might, just, that might just be the one. What, <laughs> what is given can't be stolen. Ah, there you go. So uh, true, true. But that, that, that truly was beautiful. But what is the ego's function from an evolutionary psychology or what is evolutionary psychology and, and how can we learn right. about what the function of the ego even is from, say, an evolutionary standpoint? Right. I think personally, maybe the most important scientific aspect for spiritual people to study, to ground the spirituality in the facts of the meat suit is evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology. Okay. And what evolutionary biology is, is basically looking at the laws of evolution and to see what they have created in our biology and then evolutionary psychology is extracting out this, the psychological principles that come from the facts that we've learned from evolutionary biology. And so the ego from an evolutionary biology standpoint is it is the set of programs that the genes have learned to embed in the meat suit to make the meat suit more adaptive at doing what the genes want the mm -hmm. meat suit to do, which is to survive long enough to reproduce. And so if you just take a moment to sit back and look at, <clears throat> you are inside of a body. Your body has been molded by nature for eons. Your body has nature-based goals that aren't necessarily good, They, but they're there. Mm -hmm. And it's, you want to destroy the things that are in your way so you can find a mate, so you can have babies, so your DNA can be recombined so that you're more adaptive to survive against viruses. <clears throat> so really, and the really interesting thing to point out is that sexual selection evolved because our genes are trying to out-compete viruses. So when you have non-sexual selection, like how a amoeba reproduces, it doesn't change the gen, it doesn't change the gene structure. Mm -hmm. And so if a virus comes along that's able to hack that gene structure, all those organisms die. But we develop sexual reproduction because it recombines and adds in mutation every time there's a new generation of that animal or that organism. And so it it keeps it adaptive from running or from competing against viruses. <clears throat> so like the history of biological life is genes trying to outcompete this war against viruses. So mm -hmm. that's just an interesting thing to know. Right. Um, but the ego is essentially the set of programs that the body has learned to use to serve the goals of the genes. Yeah. And it's why the ego is not, always good but it's also not bad like if you didn't have an ego you would not protect yourself from being attacked by an animal right if you didn't have an ego you wouldn't mend the the person that you love if they got a wound on their arm like right. you wouldn't have the apparatus to be able to move your body right but also the ego wants to fucking destroy a man who hugs your woman like right. in front of you <laughs> the fact that you even think she's your woman, like I just had that slip, is a function of the ego. It's right. a function of the genes. Yeah. And so just when you recognize that it's a part of you and that it has a nature and that it can be understood and that it's not inherently good or bad, but it's a thing to pay attention to and that you can use your spiritual understanding to have a dialogue with the ego to be in harmony. Right. And it's interesting because I'm going off on this little mind tangent as you're saying. It's like rewilding, essentially returning to this state of wildness. And, and my question becomes, where was our cognizance or consciousness of our ego in those wild times? Were, were we bashing people off the head if they were coming close to a woman that we were? So this is really, know? yeah, so this is really yeah. interesting. So one, yes, we were. Okay, we yeah, were. Exactly. Um, yeah. But there's a really interesting book. I forget who it's by. But it's um, <clears throat> it's this idea that so we didn't have language up until just a couple hundred thousand years ago, but we had instincts. 
and the instincts were basically the embodiment of the ego. There was no will in our older ancestors to act outside of the instincts. But eventually, and we don't know how, we started to develop language. And as we started to develop language, there's this hypothesis that the quote-unquote gods of the past were heard in the psyche of our ancestors, but that really what that was was a disembodiment of the ego, but that they didn't have the awareness to be able to discern that it was them thinking. Like if you take a moment to think about how you live through your day, you're constantly talking to yourself and it's almost always the ego talking. And you know on some level that it's you talking. It's a part of you talking. But this hypothesis is that, you know, maybe 50,000 years ago or even earlier than that, that that voice in the mind felt like a God Mm -hmm. and it felt like the God's telling you what to do. But so, um, our ancient ancestors before we had language did not experience the ego that we do, but they still had instincts and the instincts were guiding them. And then as language evolved, we seem to have gotten the ability to interact with our ego. And now we're at a really interesting time in history where we can choose to act out of accordance with our ego. Right. And that is good and bad. Right. It's amazing what's being being learned on this front too, especially through things like psychedelics and being able to kind of dis. Um, dissolve the ego somewhat or like I said even being out in nature for a very long time like me I had my dark night of the soul when I had just been divorced and had a company that was hanging in the balance didn't know what was going to happen and I literally lived in an RV in the woods for two years and what that was able to do for uh, me it was able to separate me a little bit from the ego so I could have a little bit of clarity or different like perspective because um, yeah no I just find that so fascinating from an evolutionary standpoint, it's like really what was this thing's, how did it govern us back in that day and, and how is it different now, you know? Um, and, I, and I totally like what you say because I've often thought, and I don't know where this idea comes from, but I'm thinking like our bodies obviously evolved from single-celled organisms and it took, you know, a billion years to do so. Or a hundred billion, yeah, billion years? I don't know, very long time. Anyways, where I'm going with this is that I see that these bugs that we evolved from, these bacteria essentially sometimes they're looking for us. They're controlling the shots. Like they're controlling our mitochondria essentially these bacteria. So they're, I sometimes see the consciousness of these bugs as the ego. It's what they need to keep the meat suit, as you say, alive. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know if this was a magic mushroom journey or some, wherever I got this idea, but I'm thinking sometimes like the ego's function is very primal. It's very much here on this earth where this other part of ourself or our being that we're speaking about seems like more ethereal or something from the cosmos, so to speak. And again, everything we're learning with science and quantum physics and all this stuff and the, the marriage of these two things. Now, it's it's pretty exciting stuff for sure. So just throwing that yeah, out there. The, the image that comes up for me is our meat suit is the flashlight. Our spirit is the light that comes through it. And the spirit seems to have this other like it's almost like we're waking up inside of an avatar and this avatar has programs and we see the game that the avatar is inside of and we're realizing oh wow there's other conscious beings in this game they're all inside not all but most of them are inside the same type of flashlight that i am and i'm witnessing that there's a lot of suffering happening how can we make it better right And that seems to be a different game than the game that the ego is playing. Because the only game the ego is playing on one level is how can I be safe? How can I have power? How can I be the things that will allow me to reproduce? Right. Well, it's all important stuff to know. And I guess maybe a lot of people out there listening, my, me, myself is something I've just in, in recent years through spending time in silence, really starting to discern the difference between the, say the ego talking to me and, uh, my higher self. So, you know, a lot of people interested in say the personal development space want to know how can we distinguish between say the whispers or the calling from the higher self and what the ego wants, needs, and desires. How can we tell the difference between those two things? Yeah, man, for me, uh, the way that I experience it is the ego is almost always feels like it's being generated. Like it's something that feels like it's creating the idea and the whispers almost always feel like I'm receiving. It's something that's coming to me. Right, right. And those have very different qualities. Like 
the ego plans. How should I be on this date to get them to like me? The whisper tells you, Mm -hmm. we love this person. Like you'd never have to think with your ego about whether or not you love someone. It's something that comes to you. It's the same thing with inspiration. It's the same thing with um, enthusiasm. These are not things that have to be generated. And so I think the hallmark of the difference between the ego and the soul is that the ego is creating it. And when it's the soul, you're receiving it. And also, mm-hmm. there, it happens with people who get into the spiritual space is that the ego will start to see like, huh, when Sean receives information, he's much more likely to act on it. Okay, so I'm going to pretend to be that so he will listen mm. to And so it's a thing that starts to happen with spiritual people where the ego, like your ego is always with you. Your ego always wants you to listen to it. And it's going to watch what you listen to. And when it sees that you listen to your soul, it's going to try to, it's it's going to try to be that. And when you get to that stage, uh, the thing that really helps me discern it is if I feel like I'm quote unquote getting a download, but the download is either inflating my ego, like it's telling me how great I am. Mm -hmm. Or it's smashing me and telling me how ungreat I am. Right. Both of those feel like it's the ego. And the soul almost always feels like a simple, neutral statement. Like, mm. go there. Right. Say that. Do this. Whereas the ego is like, you're so smart. Right. Or the ego is like, you could never do this. Yeah. And so those are the two things that I use is yeah. uh, if you're receiving it and if it's neutral and almost always like a statement. Yeah, I like that because I would say it's with the higher self speaking through me, it's sometimes less absolute, whereas like the ego's kind of got like a, a harshness or an edge to it. Like you were saying, it's like, no, you're really stupid or, or uh, you know, you're, oh yeah, you're the best, you're the best. Like really hard, like, yeah, you got this. Whereas, yeah, that in between, it's kind of softer, it's quiet. And it's been for someone like me who is, you know, and I don't know how, if you would say the same, but, you know, having an intellectual drive or passion or inclination, it's sometimes really hard to be like, hey, where, like, where is this brain doing me good? And then where is this brain throwing, you know, kind of leading me astray? So it's a, it's a tricky thing. And you kind of mentioned it there, as you were saying, like, it sounds to me like the, the ego isn't necessarily there so much or calling the shots when, say, we're in what's called like a flow state. Right. So again, when you're going out in nature or that. So I guess maybe my, my question I should ask is like, where is the ego when we're in that flow state? Is it still um, part of the equation that's, you know, allowing us to choose mm-hmm. things? Or is it just like, no, I'm totally yeah. being guided by God or source or spirit or what, whatever you want to call it? Yeah. So um, to get technical for a moment, the mm-hmm. ego seems to arise from a brain structure called the default mode network, which is a pattern of electrical behavior that happens through specific parts of the cortex in the brain. Okay. And when you enter into flow state, that activity pattern stops. And so on one level, the ego just falls away. But what's really interesting is the parameters that you need to have flow state depend on the facts of your biology. So for example, if you feel like there's a slight amount of danger, mm-hmm you're more likely to enter in a flow state. But the only way to, to discern danger is to run some of the programs that come from the ego that arise out of the meat body. And so on a technical level, the ego is asleep during flow states. Okay. But on a periphery level, the containers that have to be met biologically that induce flow state arise from the meat suit, which you know is the thing that creates the ego. So it's almost like, the ego can create the container for the flow states to happen. But once the flow state happens, you don't need the container. Exactly. You're just going with the flow, as they say at that point. Um, well, what are, I guess, another Jungian, uh, this kind of is making me think of synchronicities. And those are these things that kind yeah. of, I, I guess I'll get you to maybe uh, define it before I do. But yeah, or exactly, yeah, what are, what are synchronicities and how they kind of play into this flow state um, or uh, distinguishing yeah, so. between... <laughs> Synchronicities is one of the ideas that Jung came up with that the modern people at his time had the hardest time understanding. And it's because he had a hard time even articulating it. 
but the way that he defines it essentially is that a synchronicity is when the external world matches symbolically or literally what's happening in the internal world in a way that could not be coincidental. Right. So for example, my first major synchronicity moment that just broke my materialistic atheistic brain <laughs> is I was going on a walk one day in my neighborhood where I lived and I was reading a book and the quote at the, on the, at the beginning of the chapter was something along the lines of the way to walk the world like a prince is to cast golden apples for others, but to eat your own in your last moment. And it was this idea of like the way to live the best life is to give away all your best ideas, but to fulfill your greatest idea right before you die. And I don't know if I agree with that, but it was poetic. Right. I'm walking down the middle of the road. There are no apple trees where I live. And in the middle of the road is one of those apples that are gold and red, but the part that was gold was the part that was facing me. And in the middle of the fucking road, while I'm reading that quote, I look up and there is a golden apple hmm. in the middle of the road. And I still have the book and I have, I had a pink highlighter with me when I was reading and the page is just, there's exclamation marks and stars. <laughs> and like, I freaked yeah. the fuck out. And it was one of my first moments of like, that was something that there was something happening internally in my mm. psyche, which was reading this quote about golden apples. Right. And then externally in the external world, there was literally a golden apple that made no sense being there. And mm. that's an example of a synchronicity. Right. And does that, I mean, for me, I feel like that feeling instantly it unites is like an equanimous, uh, energy that kind of just overtakes you and you just feel like at one with you know body soul spirit and everything i feel like in that moment so like again synchronicities it just feels right so for me it's kind of like yeah it throws you into that right. flow state instantly and that's my meter to be like listen to this listen like listen pay attention right like and it's actually interesting i'll tell you a cool story synchronicities with me and something we i like to chat about a lot on the show is like the idea of like spirit animals and animal medicine and i know you're a, a fan of paul check as well so he's a big into the whole animal medicine thing and that's where i had learned this yeah. so my whole tattoo and i actually just posted something the other day on instagram about this and you had seen it in the making this big huge praying mantis that i have on on the on my side right big side piece and to tell listeners that story because i think it's it's very interesting in in the synchronistic sense that um when I started dating my ex-wife uh, going on like 10 years ago. We saw this praying mantis the first time we visited my parents. And this is, they have property, 10 acres of like lovely bush and this big praying mantis. And it was beautiful. We took a picture of it and we actually framed that. And it was in our house, you know, for years. I hadn't seen a praying mantis, I kid you not, for about eight years or so. Then about three weeks before um, we separated, three or four weeks before, we, I had done mushrooms uh, at our anniversary. And in that journey, a praying mantis came to me with a robotic neck and he was a godly figure and basically hung over me and said, listen, listen. And so I started to kind of like, okay, this is neat. And a few weeks before that, actually, I had gone to a conference in San Diego and I had done a tarot card reading, just this guy in the street, uh, Felix the fire cat. I still remember his name. And he had eyes like this guy had been drinking ayahuasca for a very long time. He just looked like the cosmos in his eyes. Right? I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, and he took his glasses off and got real with me. He looked, he pulls them down and he st stares right into my soul. And he says, and the card that he drew was a prey mantis meditating in nature. And he says, you need to meditate in nature. And I was like, I'm way too busy at this time. I'm, I'm running a huge kombucha company, busy, you know, egos totally inflated, not paying attention. I saw a praying mantis every week leading up to the day that we separated. Uh, so about three weeks, saw the same praying mantis. It was actually on this tree that we had at our kombucha brewery. And sure enough, did I, did I listen? Heck no, right? Mm -hmm. so, yeah, so, so then look how my life, these synchronicities, these signs, these whispers, whether it be animal medicine, from the wind, whatever you want to call it, it's when we don't listen that we're, you know, we're going to have a rough go, right? So after all this time, I finally, like, you know, I, I heard the call. I went in. It was two years of me living in the woods and that. But, like, talk about a synchronicity that totally changed my life. And then two years later, having a mushroom trip, revisiting the same prey mantis and says, and this was at Burning Man, and I literally felt like I had stepped out of a black hole that I had been living in, this total void, this total gap, because I wasn't listening to, this, to the signs. And then once I listened, he says, 
here you go, you can have your life back. And I literally walked out in a, a kick-ass day the next day at Burning Man, but that night was fucking, I, I belonged in the Zendo project that night, but I didn't go. I was just, it was pure hell, but purposeful. So, yeah. yeah. But, um, so anyways, that was a long, that was a long rant and I don't even know where that came from, but I just wanted to share that synchronicity there. Um, it wasn't a rant and I appreciate you sharing. Yeah, no, it was, it was, it's deep and I haven't, I haven't actually shared that, uh, with listeners or, or too much of that story. So yeah, so thank you for, uh, for listening to that for sure. Um, and one of the things that I want to offer there is, mm-hmm. so Jung's idea of what synchronicities are is your ego and your soul are dancing inside of space time. And he believes that your higher self, what he calls the self with a capital S, is this third entity. And it's outside of space and time. And I understand the self to basically be, it's your, high, it's, it's your highest potential. It's something like a God. Mm-hmm. And it's watching your life and, and it will drop you hints. Like, so if you imagine a being in the fourth dimension, our three-dimensional life would look like this really long worm thing. And at the beginning of the worm, we would be, you know, the zygote. And the end of the worm, if you live a long life, is like the corpse. But everything that happens in between, you could see it all at one time. And it's almost like the self is outside of space and time. And it's dropping the ego and the soul hints. And the ego and the soul are the things that have to interact in the three-dimensional world to culminate or to bring forth your individuation. And that creates like the trinity in the psyche for him. But as you can imagine, you know, as a scientist, mm-hmm. uh, his peers were like, what the fuck are you talking about? Exactly here? right, yeah. Well, this is a crazy thing about Young right now. And a big part of the show here is kind of um, – shedding a light on health science literacy. It's a really important topic because often we, we hear that science says this and therefore it is true. And, and especially in the health realms and in my experience, all things holistic health or alternative health, integrative health are truly what work. And um, we need to integrate those things into standard practice. How, so I just find it interesting that Young's work might have seen as a little bit, say, subjective or um, based in different ways of knowing that I think wasn't accepted at his time. And nowadays we're seeing sure. a resurgence within yeah. health science literacy of these like, quantum physics and all this stuff. And then with the psychedelic resurgence, I just see it's, there's no coincidence there. So I don't know if you've noticed that same, both kind of rising up. Like I feel like, again, actually I've seen, I've seen t-shirts of your face. <laughs> I've seen pictures of your face on a t-shirt that said, welcome to the jungle. Or, yeah. And, how do I get one of those? No, but like, so yeah, is there, is no, there I, um, I a resurgence? Sure get you one. <laughs> I, I will totally rock yeah, that. Yeah, dude, dude. So I've thought about this a lot. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting that all the things that I were, that I was silently obsessed with and studying alone when I was 20 are now smashing into the zeitgeist. And I'm just like, how could I be so lucky? Yeah. Like, I've, I've read about half of Jung's collective works and he's incredibly stupid, hard to read. Right. And I'm, I'm just so grateful that there's this resurgence in Jungian ideas and, you know, I get to talk about it, but yeah, (laughs) I absolutely do see it. And I think it's because he was a visionary and visionaries are almost never accepted in their time. And they're almost always integrated, you know, 80 or 90 years after their time. And we're witnessing that right now with my boy. It's yeah, it's so cool. And I'll second that too, because as I mentioned, like me being a, you know, a holistic lifestyle coach through the Czech Institute and that, um, it was all the like extra readings for all the courses that I have ever done. Like uh, Paul would give you, you know, different Carl Young works. And I try to jump into it. And this is back in my you know, university days, young undergrad days. And I thought, yeah, I can, I can handle this. I can chew on this. And there was just no way at the time. So it's interesting to me. And after so meeting hard. you, I was finally like, Hey, I'm getting into this and I have been, and it's just sink. It's sinking in right now in a way that my brain would not have allowed it to way back then. So it's just, yeah, all these synchronicities again, it's pretty wild, but uh, yeah. So let's, let's actually, let's chat about negativity bias because one thing that I did mm. after I um, finished at Solterra and I want to give your program uh, you and your friends program uh, fucking smile foundation 
a plug right here because it was so, 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 so influential into my integration. In fact, it made it a lot harder to be quite honest with you because I would have been fine with doing my own journaling and my own practices, but you guys were throwing prompts every day, 30 days after I had done ayahuasca. It's like, fuck dude, I don't want to look at this again. I just fucking spent a night in a ceremony and I get it, but it, it was, so it was challenging for me. And some days like I would literally like, nope, not journaling. And I know what that is for me. It's because journaling has been a big, important part of my healing tree time journaling for me. Um, but in, in that course, long winded way of saying in that course, you spoke about negativity bias. And I was like, this is yeah. really neat. So yeah. Can you explain a little bit about, you know, what it is, why it exists from an evolutionary standpoint. And then, um, yeah, and maybe can we change our perspective to be, say, a more positive one rather than this negativity bias? Yeah. Yeah, so one of the programs that evolution has put into our egos is this thing that scientists call negativity bias. And it's essentially one of the core instincts of the psyche is to conserve energy. And so part of that is if something is working, don't pay attention to it because if it's working, we don't have to do anything about it. And so it's a way to conserve energy so we can go solve the things that need to be solved. But what that means is that if you're unconscious to it, you are programmed to ignore the symphony Mm -hmm. of infinity that is going perfectly right now in order for you to even have consciousness like if you take a moment to really think there are unfathomable amounts of physical properties unfolding in this universe in order for there to even be an earth there are unfathomable amounts of biological processes happening in your body right now in order for you to even be conscious and there are an unfathomable amount of actions that have happened in your life for you to still be alive right now but you are programmed to ignore all of that so you can worry about i'm not making enough money this person that i like doesn't like me as much as i like them my knee aches i don't know what i want to eat for dinner traffic sucks right and so the first step is knowing that you are programmed to ignore the perfection that's happening around you. Mm-hmm. And if you want to really connect to it, you can through uh, some type of daily gratitude practice. And basically what mm-hmm. a gratitude practice looks like is taking some time and just listing a couple of the things that you're grateful for. And there's a lot of like gratitude journals out there now and they're good, but the research shows that the magic comes from writing about why that thing exists. So it's one thing to say right. that you're grateful for your cat. Cool. But where the psychological payoff comes from is articulating why it's in your life. Mm-hmm. And so if you have a daily practice where you write down three things that you're grateful for right. and why they exist in your life, research shows that that improves symptoms of depression uh, statistically significantly over the course of a couple of weeks. And it's something that we can all do. It's so simple. And and you guys' course there actually made me, I was kind of keen on looking at some of these research. I think you guys actually maybe had cited something. But anyways, I looked looking more so at the expressive journaling side of things. And yeah, quite well studied and just putting pen to paper and letting stream of consciousness, just letting things come out, very healing. And, and, uh, yeah. And again, kind of identifying where's my ego, where's my higher self and what's the story I've been telling myself right throughout most of my life. And it's amazing that yeah, journaling, it's just so accessible. It's pen paper. We all know how to, you know, the most part read and write. So it's just getting to it, but sometimes it can just be, it's like pulling teeth sometimes for me anyways, trying to get out and journal. It's, it's the one thing that it's like, I'll hit my cold showers, you know, and I can eat clean and all that stuff. But like for me, I yeah, getting down and, and journaling is sometimes super tough, super, super tough. Yeah. And what's really interesting is one of the things that we can all, all use in our life is that thing that, you know, that is good for you, that you have the most resistant to that's the most important mm, one to do. Right. The Joseph is Joseph Campbell quote. The cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you desire. Something like that. I don't know. Yeah, it's Joseph Campbell, and it's the cave you most fear to Uh, enter mm. uh, 
has the treasure that you need or something like oh, that. But right? it's about, it's the one that you fear most is, ex- is the place that has the treasure. Always, always, always. And that's just it. I think domestic, modern day domestication has kind of taken that, uh, the, not ferociousness, but that gur, that ability to say, yeah, I need this food. I need this. Like we've kind of lost that. And we just want things handed to us. I often find. So I think, I think journaling is a great way for us to kind of retap into that wild soul, right? Or the, to bring unity to both or to body, mind, and soul. But what about um, how might we reclaim this wild aspect of our psyche through other things? Like I know you were big on dream work. We haven't. What? How did maybe how did indigenous cultures still today using dreams, or how did past civilizations use dreams? How does dream work um, help us kind of reclaim some of that wildness? Yeah, <clears throat> the wildness is inside of you Mm -hmm. and it will never go away and if you ignore it it will fuck up your life yeah and one of the places where it will always try to talk to you is through dreams and for example native american cultures um the chiefs of the tribes were responsible for being clean quote unquote enough to get big dreams and the big dreams were dreams for the tribe and sometimes the dreams would tell them where to go hunt next or the dreams would tell them that they had to do some ritual that they had to dance to the sun god or the moon god or the rain god or whatever and the ways uh i think this is a man and his symbols that some of these um indian not Indian, but Native American right. tribes, like with how they believed you had to be to be capable of getting big dreams is you can't lie. You can't steal. You have to protect your tribe from other tribes and from things like that. And you have to keep your word. Mm-hmm. And those were some of the things that they found that if you want to have big dreams, and these are basically dreams that are for your tribe, mm-hmm. that you have to be. Um, and if you look at every major culture, there's all sorts of um, like dreams is where a lot of their gods would come talk to them. Mm-hmm. And our dreams, our wild selves are trying to get access to us. And sometimes your dreams will tell you exactly like you have to move. Sometimes your dreams will tell you that you have to end a relationship. Right. Sometimes your dreams will tell you that you have to, you know, go do something that you fear. And the way that you connect to the wild self is by saying yes to the calls to adventure that come to your life, either through dreams or through synchronicities Mm -hmm. that scare your ego. Right. And that's again, yet the, yet again, the challenging work that I think, uh, in this modern day, you know, civilized life, it is just not something that we're often, um, not something that we're set up to do, right? We don't have these like rites of passages or things like that that put us through these challenging times. We say no to the journaling or the cold shower or whatever it may be. Um, it's fascinating. And I, yeah, and I think, and I had said to you that when I get back, I really want to start looking in and getting into my dream work. And I had been for some time leading up to the holidays and that. And um, yeah, vivid, vivid dreams after our ceremonies down there. And um, yeah, thank you for kind of like setting me up with that whole, or, you know, talking about dreams and their importance. Cause, uh, yeah, wild dreams, man, like dreams that I'm Wolverine from X-Men running through buildings, chopping people's heads off. And, but, and I'm not a person to dream and then bringing back just everything through these dreams and through journaling about it, really getting a sense of, sure. I've understood things. I've been doing this work for some time now, spiritual type work, but understanding on a etheric level or the level of the mind is one thing, but truly embodying it is another thing. And these journaling practices it's just been just been magic for me in kind of yeah getting some equanimity in my life so yeah it's bad yeah and just to share with the uh audience one more time i truly believe that there's a part of you that's much smarter than the conscious part of you that's watching your life and has been watching your life since you were born and it knows everything that you think it knows all of your dreams and it knows all of your lies and it talks to you literally every night through your dreams. And if you learn how to understand the language of dreams, you can start to have a dialogue with this super wise, deep, wild part of you that wants to help you live your greatest life. Right. It's far out. And it's beautiful too. Um, 
and that sounds cliche, but I've heard you say before your thing about your spiel about cliches. And it's so true though. That, that truly is beautiful. And that is, it's the Holy grail. It's that godly stuff that keeps everything spinning. And I find it so interesting. Um, speaking about dreams, we're getting close to a full hour here, but I want to ask you um, a couple more questions. What's your wildest dream? You're a man of dreams, a man who wants to heal the earth. Uh, we share that same passion, and I really connected with you on that when we met down Solterra. Here's someone doing some work, wanting to help others, and I have a similar story in wanting to help others um, before I was able to, ones that maybe didn't want my help. Um, so I've learned the hard way in that regard. But what, for you, after everything you've been through and having uh, – you know, work with different medicines and being a part at on it and all the healing you guys are doing uh, through the fit for service work. What's your wildest dream for the earth, for yourself, for your community, for the earth? Where do you want, wherever you want yep. to go with that one? My, I have a dream that one day there will be so many, that there will be enough people whose internal light is on that any young person or lost person who wants to say yes to the path that they can see on their horizon a light and what i mean by that is i think that the most adaptive human story that we can tell ourselves is the hero's journey mm -hmm. and that the and that people who truly accept and embody the hero's journey their light they have a light on inside of them because they will not settle for the ordinary world they know what the calls to adventure look like. They know about, about how important it is not to refuse the call, mm -hmm. to find the mentors, to cross the threshold, to go do the trials, to go face the dragons, and then to bring home the medicine and to share it. They know that that's what it means to be a human. Mm -hmm. And so they're a light. And all the people who are apathetic, nihilistic, have victim perspectives that they think the world is happening to them, that they can't change it and that they just want someone else to come save them. Right. To me, those are people who don't have the light on, but my dream is that any person who ever chooses that they want to start to have the light, that enough people know this story that they, that they can turn to someone in their community or their tribe that day that can share with them the light, which is the hero's journey. That's beautiful. And it is a, a collective thing. I think we all need to do that work when we hear the call, right? Because um, it's just, like you said, it's we need a lot of lights right now. I do, I firmly believe that Mother Earth knows how to heal herself. It's it's us that I'm that I'm concerned about, right? I know the earth will return to the wild and, and heal um, if we weren't here, right? So it, it's it's truly is us to do this, do this work as a collective. So that we can all start shining lights on. So when people need a light, they know where to look or they've got one shining their way, right? So that's beautiful. What, uh, what type of things do you do to tap into that wild part of your soul? Um, you know, the wild part of your soul. How do you experience peace, joy, vitality, all this, you know, type of stuff that we're, we're kind of talking about here? What do you do? What yeah, so the ways that I tap into my soul, honestly, the most direct way now is by engaging in an authentic conversation with somebody that I love. And what mm -hmm. I mean by that is if I can be present in a conversation and it's why I love podcasting, and it's why I love coaching is that if I can be present in the conversation and the person in front of me is being, is just sharing their truth, my soul wisdom will come out effortlessly if I don't try to do anything. And then I'm taking a step back and witnessing what I am saying and realizing that that is my soul. And then I follow my own advice. And so that's one of the most clear ways that I'm able to tap into that. Mm -hmm. But whatever comes up is highly dependent on what the person in front of me needs. When I have my personal stuff, um, journaling, and then honestly writing Instagram posts, Oh yeah, writing an Instagram post for me, is my way of creating art that alchemizes whatever it is, is my current problem. Mm -hmm. And when I have the expectation that people I care about are going to see it, right. it brings forth this higher part of me mm -hmm. that is excited to share the medicine in a way that will help them. So those are ways that I tap into my soul. Cool. Obviously, if I feel like I'm in a big rut, 
I'll go to plants. Um, but I don't do that often because I don't need it often. Um, but if I do, I absolutely use that tool. And then ways that I keep myself, you know, like vital and alive is I eat well, Mm -hmm. I sleep well, I work out, I go spend time with my friends and I find ways to serve. Right. The foundational stuff. So important. I, um, I really resonate with a lot that you said there. And I think listeners will too, because, um, so many people are being called to do the work. Um, and I think that's a beautiful thing. And I think the message that you're putting out there, well, one thing I think, like you said, Instagram, it, it's, it is, it can be used for good. Right. And I've, I've used it similarly. 100%. And, uh, you're, you're putting yourself out there in a vulnerable way, right. For people to see, Hey, I'm not the only one that feels this way. Right. And for me, just writing that, however many characters you're allowed in an Instagram post, um, it's very therapeutic and there's some posts that don't even get done because like, I can't fit this in within the word limit. Right. But I've written it out and therefore it's been beneficial. I mean, it might've belonged in my journal rather than on the keyboard say, but I'm um, putting that out there for others to see. I think it's so important and it is, it's going to shine that light for so many people out there. Right. So awesome, awesome Amen. stuff. Yeah, man. So, well, we're at the, uh, we're at the hour mark, my brother. I don't want to let you go, but I know I got to, it's that non-attachment stuff that I've been practicing, but, uh, I guess before we go, uh, let folks know where they can find you, uh, where they can find your podcast, the myths that make us. Um, yeah. How can people get in touch with what you're doing? Yeah. The myths that make us, you can find it on Spotify and Apple and and Stitcher. And, um, I have a weekly newsletter where I basically share what the dopest stuff is that I'm interacting with every Friday. And you can find that at ericgotsy.com. Cool. And then I'm most active on Instagram at Eric Godsey, G-O-D-S-E-Y. There it is, that cool name again. Bring it back full circle. <laughs> All right, my man. Well, yeah, thank you so much for being here. And thank you to everyone out there for listening. I really do appreciate it. If you've got a minute, please leave us a comment. Let us know what you thought of this episode. And if you've got an extra minute, head on over to uh, Eric's podcast and give a listen and do the same thing. Leave him a rating review because I know I've done that. It's totally five star and your, your show scares me. I'm actually kind of glad you, you totally didn't take over my podcast like you do on other people's podcasts and to- psychoanalyzing me too much. So I'm, I'm happy that you didn't, uh, <laughs> you didn't take it that way, my man. But anyways, I uh, thank you guys again for listening. And until next time, as always stay wild. Thank you for listening to the Rewild My Bio podcast. Please subscribe to the show and leave a five-star rating if you've enjoyed this episode. I would greatly appreciate it if you shared the show with your friends, if of course you think they would like it. You can also visit rewildmybio.com to download previous episodes and sign up for the newsletter. In the newsletter, I share blogs and bonus content from my health promotion research, along with practical tips to help you rewild in a modern world. Please follow along on Instagram and Facebook at RewildMyBio and on Twitter at Sean Slade. Thank you so much for listening and until next time, stay wild.